Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the joy of the saints. For joy, Father, that is beyond mere friendship. For joy, Father, that extends even beyond the family members that may join us here on Sunday mornings. It is a joy, Father, that only those in the faith would understand and know. A joy made complete in the Spirit. A joy, Father, that we share a common experience having once been a son or daughter of disobedience outside the promises of God and without hope in this world. And then, Father, by the miracle that is the work of your Spirit in our hearts, in bringing faith in the Gospel, we now all share in that hope, in that future resurrection and an eternity with you. And we know, Father, even as we await that time now, that it is no less certain and it is no less sure than the day you promised it. And in that, Father, there is immense joy and a kind of fellowship that is unlike anything else and unlike anything the world can experience short of your grace. And we thank you, Father. Let us never take for granted the opportunity to gather and to share with one another in the Lord, to share in the love we have for you and your word. This morning, Father, your word is again in the front of our attention, in the laps of those who hold your Bible. And for, Father, all of us, it is the reason we have been called into faith, to know and do your word. And we ask, Father, that what we learn today would have that effect in our life, calling us to greater and greater steps of obedience, and ultimately, Father, to glorifying your name among the nations. Let that be its purpose in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, because I know how very much you all enjoyed the study of genealogy last week in chapter 10, I thought we'd do chapter 11, which just so happens to have a little bit more genealogy. Actually, it was the Lord who decided you would study a little bit more genealogy, for that's how he organized his word. But I also don't want to risk us getting too much of a good thing all at once, so What we're going to do is divide this chapter into two weeks. First half today, this half will not have any genealogy in it. We'll wait for that to next week. It's an entry point into chapter 12. This week instead, we're going to follow what Moses does as he addresses the answer to the question of why did men move outward into the far corners of the world as we saw described in chapter 10? Why did chapter 10 happen? Chapter 11 is the answer. So today we learn about an incident that begins the chapter, an incident that's instigated by a character that was introduced back in chapter 10, the man Nimrod. And we're also going to take note here as we study it, the story that is, of an important literary device that Moses uses. It's often used by biblical writers, particularly Old Testament writers. It's called a chiasm from the Greek letter chi. It's a device that draws our attention to the most important point in the text. You have in your handout the breakdown of that literary device. We will cover it, as I mentioned, later in the teaching. But for now, let's begin at the top of chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Read with me. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us build bricks or let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens or into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, we will pause 
for the moment. I hope you remember from last week, as we studied chapter 10, the relationship between that chapter and this one. Do you remember as we covered last week how they are related? Chapter 10 was the zooming out, the view of a large period of time, seen from atop it all, looking across a large period of time, specifically of the time in which men were dispersed after the flood and moved out into the four corners of the world. That was the essential point of chapter 10. But chapter 11 now is actually a zooming back in on one aspect of that big period of time. So if I was to depict the relationship between chapters 10 and 11 visually, I would take chapter 10 and lay it out before you. And then I would take chapter 11 and just stick it somewhere in the middle of chapter 10. That's how these two relate in time. This is a moment in the time of chapter 10. Actually, a moment at very early in chapter 10, because it explains that dispersion, that movement of men outward from the time after the flood. In chapter 10, if you remember, we learned about a man named Nimrod, one of the descendants of Cush, a man who, we're told, commanded a mighty city near present-day Babel in the valley of Shinar, or what we would say today, Mesopotamia. We're talking here about the Euphrates River Valley in modern-day Iraq. This man, Nimrod, is a mighty hunter, we're told, a man who stands opposed to God. He was in defiance and rebellion to God, and he led men under that banner of rebellion. And in the course of leading them, he founded a city, a great city, we're told. But then, curiously, in chapter 10, we're told he leaves this city, this town that he founded, this big accomplishment, and he moves to another place in Assyria and starts a whole other city, a separate one, distinct from the first. If you look at the description of that city, the second one in Assyria, that one is actually by its dimensions, by its description geographically, that city spans a distance, almost the the distance between Austin and San Antonio. That's how great a settlement he created in Assyria. That's how great it was. But why did he leave Babel? Why, if he's put all the effort and time into creating this great accomplishment, this great city in the first place, does he move and create another one? What was his reason for moving? And also in chapter 10, we heard about another man, a man named Peleg. And Peleg was noted in chapter 10 as being the man who was born in the year when the earth was divided. That was a curious reference, a bit out of place, really. It caused us to ask the question, well, why were men divided? Why was the earth divided up in Peleg's day? What was going on? Well, the answers to those questions are in chapter 11 here. The story of the dividing of men, the dispersion of men, the movement of Nimrod into Assyria, all of that comes because of language, because of what God does with the languages of the earth. Moses tells us here in chapter 11, as he begins, that all the earth, all mankind, had only one language in the beginning. In this stage, and presumably going all the way back to Adam, there had only ever been one language. Specifically in in Hebrew, The text says everyone had the same language and everyone had the same words. That's not merely repetitive. Those are distinctions with meaning. Language means tongue, the natural way we speak, the way our vocal cords produce sound, the sound of consonants and the sound of vowels. You know, if you try to learn another language, for example, and and I have this challenge living in San Antonio, I try to learn Spanish. They have all these funny things they do with R's and L's and and other consonants and vowels that are different than what we do with the same things in English, and that's training your tongue. So a tongue is the way we make sounds. 
Words, on the other hand, means the vocabulary. I can speak with very similar sounds and yet use different words and you still may not be able to understand me. And there are languages in the world that share very similar consonant and vowel sounds, but their vocabularies have changed over time such that now they're considered different languages and people couldn't easily understand one another without learning the other language, the other vocabulary. In this case, though, all men used the same sounds, all men had the same vocabulary. So, to put it simply, men could understand one another perfectly, at least as far as the language goes. Now, as we've noted in past weeks, the names of ancient men up until chapter 11, those names had meaning. A quick review here for the sake of proving my point. What was the meaning of the name Methuselah? It's related to the flood, but it literally means when he dies, it shall come. When he dies, it shall come. And he died in the year the flood came. So his name had meaning. But that begs the question. In what language does Methuselah mean that? It doesn't mean that in English, right? I can say Methuselah, and it means something in a different language. What language? Hebrew. It has meaning in Hebrew. Similarly, Noah means rest, the one who will give us rest. Adam means earth. Those are words in Hebrew. So it stands to reason that the one language all men shared, at least until chapter 11, was Hebrew. For after all, their names have meaning only in that language. So it was the first language. So in verse 2 now, the scene changes. We hear now about some group of people, the text says they, heading east into the plain of Shinar, or as we said already, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Who are they? Well, the rules of grammar tell us we have to trace that pronoun back to its antecedent, in chapter 11, verse 1. And the antecedent would be the earth, or in other words, all people. So all people, humanity, as it is constituted in this day, whoever they may be, all humanity moved eastward. What we're talking about is Noah's family, of course, and his descendants more broadly, all that have come from him since he left the ark. They're still all together. And apparently, somewhere near where the ark landed, which is west of Mesopotamia, but at some moment, they decide they're going to all move back eastward to where they originated, back to Mesopotamia, to what would be known later as Babylon. This is the location where the garden used to be. Do you remember we said the garden stood for a thousand plus years after the fall? The only reason the garden doesn't still stand today is that it was wiped out with the flood. So perhaps at some point after the flood, men in this day fought back to the life they had prior to the flood. The life Noah and Shem and Japheth and Ham talked about. The time before when they could still see God's glory in the, from afar inside the, the Garden of Eden, guarded by that angel. And somewhere somebody said, you know, we should go back. This isn't our home. That's our home. We need to go back to where we came from. And so they set off to return home. And as they make that trip back eastward, they show, they show up in Mesopotamia and they find the garden has long since been wiped away. It's not there. In fact, nothing's there. It's all different. But they settle there nonetheless, we're told in verse 2. And then they begin to build. And they learn. And they learn to build, it says, new things, using new techniques, using new structures. Specifically, they begin to make brick. We typically see bricks made in a manufacturing plant here. 
But if you go to places outside the, the Western world, particularly in developing countries in the world, bricks are still made by hand. It's clay, it's a binding agent, straw, something like that. They're formed by hand, they're dried in the sun, they're baked in a kiln to strengthen them. This becomes the raw pieces of building new buildings. Brick. They've got to be held together with something, so we use mortar, cement, and sand mixed together. Or if you don't have that, maybe it's mud, maybe it's clay, or in this case, bitumen is the literal term of what they use here. It's a kind of tar that will dry in the sun and, and hold bricks together. So having obtained the materials, having a desire to build, they now set their sights on an ambitious goal. So they start building a city. They start building it with their own hands. As a united people, conferring and planning and communicating efficiently, they decide, we can do this. We should do this. We will do this. And then as they build the city, the idea emerges somewhere amongst them. Maybe Nimrod himself developed this idea that there would be a tower in the middle of the city or somewhere prominently that would reach so high it would actually reach into heaven. Some have theorized that this was a ziggurat. That's a term for a pyramid with steps along the side, similar to what you see now in central Mexico, where it's similar to what we see in Egypt in the sense that it's pyramid-shaped, but instead of smooth sides, the sides have stair steps going up. But that's a theory. There's really no way we can know exactly what they were building. But as they build this, they say to themselves, by this great work that we are accomplishing, we will make a name for ourselves. Now, in the end, they pursue this great work of human hands because otherwise, they say, we would be scattered abroad and we would be separated throughout the earth. So it is both an attempt to gain something and protect something at the same time. Gain a name, but also to protect against the possibility of being scattered. So that's a summary of what we just read. Now, I'm hoping that you can tell already there's more going on here than meets the eye. That the simple description doesn't do justice to all that's really happening in this text. First, you may have noticed the direction they traveled. We're told right up front in chapter 11, they traveled east. Here's where I'm hoping that the course of study we've been engaged in here for many weeks and months and even years now has started to take hold, at least for some of us. And when you saw the word east at the beginning of this chapter, a little bell went off and you said east. East is not good. East is bad. I wonder if that's a sign of something. Sure it is. And more than just going east, they go to a specific place in the east. They go to the Valley of Shinar, to Mesopotamia. And that should have rung a second bell in your head because, as we pointed out here in past weeks, Mesopotamia is the stronghold of the enemy. It's the enemy's home territory. It's where all the sin of the world began in the Garden of Eden. It's where the devil calls home. Next, as we take a look at the details of the story, from a spiritual point of view, we notice the families of the earth move back to their beginning place, and they do so in defiance of God's word. Do you remember what God's word was to Noah after they leave the ark? Go out and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the command they heard from God himself as they departed the ark. Instead of God's command being fulfilled in their obedience here, they stay together and actually travel backward, not only physically, but metaphorically. They move closer to where they started rather than going out as God directs. You couldn't have done something more 180 degrees opposite of God's command than what they did right here. This is as defined as you can get. Then, next, we notice they begin to create building materials for themselves. Now, this is interesting because it says specifically in the chapter, in the verses I've already read, they use bricks instead of stone. 
Now, stones are readily available. In fact, by the very mention of this in the text, it seems to imply that they have previously used stone, and rather than using that now to build up a structure, they have gone to the extra effort to create something by themselves, of their own hands, making something that is a sort of cheap replacement for what God himself has provided naturally in the form of uncut stones. Furthermore, when they build, they build cities. What are cities? Cities are really concentrations of humanity, simply put. Concentrations, density, putting people close together in direct opposition to what God has said he wants done. And then in the middle of it all, they decide they need a tower, not a tower for any legitimate uh, agricultural purpose or for any other needing, needful purpose, but merely for the sake of their pride. This was going to be a city that would obtain a name for themselves. In Hebrew, when it says name here, it means reputation. It means testimony. This will be their testimony. Their testimony will be our city. With the tower as a part of it, of course. And this tower is said to reach into heaven, Shamayim. By its context, it would seem to imply high enough to reach God, in other words. But do you notice they don't have the goal of reaching God? You may have assumed that when he said heaven, but look at the text. It doesn't say, let's build a tower that we can reach God. It says, let's build a tower that we can reach heaven. There's a difference. You know, there's a lot of people that go to bed every night praying to go to heaven. A lot of religions that talk about heaven, the afterlife, glory in some form. But there's only one faith that talks about Christ, which is our only way to heaven. These people aren't talking about God or Jesus. They're talking about heaven in the abstract, generic sense. They want to reach heaven. They want to reach a place of glory, doing it by the work of their own hands. Can you see this bigger picture now? Have all the pieces fallen into place for you? You have the sin of pride alive and well in the men and the women of this day, just as much as it was in the garden. You have men here still being born in the likeness of Adam, And as such, in the likeness of sin, and man's sinful nature here has produced desires and instincts that move them 180 degrees from where God would rather them be. Instead of going west, they go east. Instead of scattering, they come together. Instead of relying on God, they seek their work of their own hands. They make their own bricks. Instead of seeking a name of the Lord as their glory, instead of seeking the city that has no foundations, the city that is in heaven, they seek a city they make with their own hands here on earth that will glorify themselves and not God. And then instead of reaching God through faith in his son, they want to reach heaven by the work of their own hands through a tower, as if it were possible. Now, we can sit here and laugh at this, right? We can sit here and pity them a little bit and chuckle a little at the stupidity of a tower that could reach God, right? All of these things we, in our enlightened age, look at and think, how foolish. And as Christians, we particularly look at it with pity because we understand the truth of the Scripture and the testimony of grace through Christ. That, that is already firm and fixed in our hearts, or so I hope. But I want you to look at the world today and ask yourself, are we living in a world that's really any different than this world? What is the greatest glory to men in this day? By and large, it's the same things of that day. Our cities, our construction projects, we glory in that constantly. When did the skyscraper emerge? Only in the last hundred years or so. 
And now it's the dominant feature of most cities, the thing we point to most prominently, isn't it? Isn't there always been and still today a race among the barons of industry to build the tallest and most impressive structures? Today it's in Dubai, tomorrow it's in Malaysia, maybe again in New York one day. You you see the pattern, right? Now, we're too sophisticated to sit and talk to each other across boardroom tables and say, this is our attempt to reach heaven. No one says that anymore. They don't need to. They're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying to reach a, a level of glory in their own work. God's never been the point. It wasn't the point then. It's not the point now. But heaven, or some abstract concept of what heaven is, glory, fame, something. I think if you were to talk to some of these men that drive these projects and really get them in a private moment, I think they themselves would acknowledge they don't really know why they're doing it. To me, it always reminds me of the dog that chases the car. What if he ever caught it? What would he do? (laughs) The whole fun is in the chase. If he ever did get it, it would ruin it. Because now the pointlessness of it becomes so apparent. And for many of these people, the chase, the goal, the effort was the whole point, not the outcome. Because if they ever reach some point of stopping, of reaching some kind of success, whatever success is defined as, then the disappointment sets in and the folly of it becomes evident. They realize it was never going to amount to anything anyway. A lot of men go to their deathbed with regrets because they've chased the wrong thing their whole life. In Revelation, in the letters to the seven churches, Jesus says this in 3.12. He says, He who overcomes, which is speaking to a believer, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Do you want a name for yourself? Do you want an edifice, something that stands as testimony for your sake? God's prepared to give you those things according to his glory, by his work, in his good timing. And they are ours by faith, by he who overcomes But those things can't be obtained in this life. We can try, but we only find ourselves like the dog chasing the car. We find ourselves with something we can't make any use of when we stand before the Lord in judgment. So keeping in mind that this story here is historical truth. It's not some contrived metaphor. It's not some made-up story to teach a lesson or a moral truth. It is literal historical fact. And yet the lesson is still the point. This moral truth is still the key point to take out of this story. The sin nature of all men is just as strong today as it was on the day of Nimrod. And it drives us to do these same fruitless things. I know people whose whole life is physical fitness. There's something that we work out in our own efforts so that we can turn and look at ourselves in the mirror and praise ourselves. Or feel good about ourselves. Our sin nature though, drives us away from God. We instinctively will seek ways to make our own way in this physical life and in our spiritual life. But friends, as Christians, we have to acknowledge that's not how it works. Even in the times when we've chased those things and made some measure of success, we've always been disappointed when we finally got it, aren't we? It's the dog chasing the car problem again. Every time they get, it doesn't satisfy, they have to get again, and they have to get again, and it never satisfies. That's that innate, selfish self-centered, prideful, sinful heart that is never satisfied and always seeking. So as a Christian, we may in our heads acknowledge the sovereignty of God. We may acknowledge the authority of God over our life. We may acknowledge that we must submit to His will, but we still struggle with that yielding process, don't we? 
we would rather, I think, make names for ourselves at times in the world than by submitting to God and accepting what glory comes from that. We'd rather build something with our own hands. When John gets this vision of Revelation, when God gives him this letter, one of the visions that he gets in the course of Revelation is of a coming destruction against false religious practices in the world. It comes late in that book. If you've studied it, you know it's in chapter 17. But here's what he sees at that later point concerning the destruction of false religion. Verse 3 of chapter 17. John says, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. Now, this mysterious woman, John sees, is called Babylon, and she's described as a mother of all harlots. Let's look at those two things just briefly. She's called Babylon. That's the name of the city that's being built now in Nimrod's day. That's the name of this place that Nimrod is building, that we later come to call Babel. And then secondly, she's called a harlot. More than just that, a mother of all harlots. The beginning of all harlots. What's a harlot? Prostitute. Prostitute. But more specifically, a harlot or a prostitute is someone who counterfeits true love. It's a complete counterfeit, completely false, completely untrue form of what it pretends to be. Anyone who would follow this harlot, this mother of harlots, this woman Babylon, they are misled into a false relationship with a false god rather than becoming the bride of Christ. She is called the mother of all harlots and the mother of all abominations on earth because every false, lying religion begins with her. She is Babylon. She is the metaphor, the picture of what Nimrod begins. Idol worship. False religion. The endeavor to build this city, the endeavor to build this tower is all the beginning of false religion after the flood. Born in rebellion against the word of God. And from this start comes all future abominations, all future counterfeits, all future false religions. The enemy, Satan, has been working in the sons of disobedience from the beginning. And here he is now beginning the process of putting into the world false teaching, false religion. Now, here's what the enemy wants you to believe. The enemy wants all of us to believe that the world is filled with many ways to God, many religions. And the sheer number of them is proof in and of itself that there is no one right way. After all, how could that be true if we have a thousand religions? There can't just be one when there's already a thousand out there. He works hard creating that impression. If I had a board up here behind me, I would draw you a picture that I think represents how Satan works in this area. If I took a pie chart, a round circle, right? And I there's no other kind of circle, I think. So if I drew a round circle and then I started to just divide it up like you would cut a pie... Only instead of eight nice sections like we typically do on a pie plate, I want to make a thousand cuts. So I'll just keep throwing lines up there like spokes on a wheel until it's so sectioned up that all you can get are little slivers out of that pie. That's what Satan has done with this harlot, with Babylon. 
It started with Nimrod and the, the effort to build the city. It moved outward from there and became Assyria later. And from there it became many other false gods and false deities and false religions and false ways. And as those proliferated around the globe, the confusion set in. And one by one, whether it's Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Islam, humanism, paganism in any form, the world has been deceived over and over and over again with exactly the same lie. You can be your own God. By the work of your hands, you can reach a name for yourself and a glory for your posterity. And if you build and work hard enough, you can reach heaven. It's never changed. What you do is changed. How hard you have to do it is changed. Who you have to answer to, how you have to pray, where you lie down, how you stand, all that kind of stuff gets changed from one person to the next. But the core never changes. The mother of all harlots is Babylon. False religion teaches self-seeking, like these families who sought for their own place. True faith says you set aside your own desires and you instead follow the Lord. False religion teaches that the work of our hands is the solution to our problems, but true faith recognizes our work, our own work, gains us absolutely nothing, spiritually speaking. We have to depend on the work of God in Christ to save us. And then lastly, religion, false religion, teaches us to seek for heaven and that with enough work, we can get there eventually. True faith says seek for Jesus Christ and he will find us, he will come to live in us, he will change us, he will save us. Now as we've learned throughout the whole story of Genesis up to this point, when men rebel, what does God do? He answers them, he answers them with judgment tempered by grace. Look what he does. Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their, excuse me, and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. I love verse (laughs) 5 for more reasons than one, but for the obvious reason, the Lord comes down to see the city. Isn't that ironic, right? Here they are working to build something to reach him, And nonetheless, when it's time, he has to come down there to see this pitiful little thing that's supposedly reaching to heaven, right? I mean, do we honestly think God needed to travel down there to see it? I mean, it's not like that, right? God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He obviously understood this was being built already. He knew it all from the beginning. But in the way it's described, the way Moses is called out here to describe it, it gives us this clear understandable picture. It's called an anthropomorphism, assigning human behavior to God. God is coming down, bringing himself out of the throne room. You can almost imagine, right? He's kind of, oh, I've got to get up and go see this thing, see what they're doing. The requiring of God to come down only amplifies the pitifulness of what men are doing, the fruitlessness of it, the stupidity of it. It's been said that trying to reach God by our own effort could be compared to two people who are standing, let's say, in the middle of Kansas, trying to throw rocks and hit the North Pole. One of us might throw it farther than the other one. 
But no matter who throws farther, both rocks fall way short of reaching the North Pole. That's the reality of human work, spiritually speaking. We cannot, in our own work, ever hope to reach a goal of perfection in Christ, for that is the standard to enter into heaven. Our efforts always fall far short, even if individually there are differences between how much one person does and how much another person does. And we might actually stand back in our human way of looking at people and say, you know, so-and-so did a better work than so-and-so. This person's work is closer to what God wants than this person. Well, that's like the two people in Kansas comparing who threw the rock farther. Who cares? From God's point of view, you're miles away. In fact, your rock didn't even get into the right area code, much less zip code. There is not even a closeness in issue here. It's simply futile. Secondly, I want you to notice that God refers to these builders here in a very specific way. He calls them the sons of men. What the word men is here in Hebrew. Adam. 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 Sons of Adam, in other words. These are the sons of Adam. Folks, that's not a compliment. That's an indictment. They are in the likeness and in the pattern of their sinful father. Born into his likeness, as the scriptures tell us. Born into sin and acting accordingly. Even by that reference, God is making clear the fact that these people are acting out in their sinful way. So God then says the language is the key issue here. The language is the key to their rebellion. They have a single language, and if left, as it were, their sin is unrestrained. There's no governor. There's nothing there to temper the sin of human hearts. No barrier. He says nothing would be impossible for them. Now, in the context, he's not suggesting that men could literally do anything, that there's no barrier to human behavior or human accomplishment. What he's saying is there's no barrier to how far human sin will bring them and take them. There's nothing to the limits of sin because they can act as one. It's the one plus one equals five. If you've been in a group in your life in which the group was not godly, not healthy, not inclined to do what God would want, maybe not even a believing group of people, then you already know from your own experience what happens when that group gets together. They're far worse together than they ever would be by themselves. So in grace, God determines not to allow that situation to go on unchecked. Imagine what it must have been like if you and I were there and the languages are scrambled. God, in a moment, changes language. One moment, we're working together on the city and on the tower and we're talking and so on, and the next minute, we're all in a different world. One moment we're speaking, they can understand me, I can understand them. And remember, of course, men have never known another language. We have no concept of language. Until there was more than one, no one had any concept of languages. And then suddenly, words aren't words any longer. Suddenly, from the perspective of each individual person, nothing has changed in their own speech. They're still talking. They can understand themselves. God didn't make it so that men couldn't understand themselves. But as I'm speaking, I notice that other faces are puzzled, at least initially, and then maybe that puzzle starts to give way to concern. And maybe even in the eyes of some, it starts to turn to fear. And we don't understand why they're looking that way. And sooner or later, I realize they're speaking gobbledygook, gibberish. And I think maybe it's even a game at first. Maybe they're playing a game on me. It's a trick. But then it never stops. And then I notice other people are doing it. And then I notice that everyone's a little bothered by everybody else talking gobbledygook and no one seems to have a solution. And as I desperately try to find someone to talk to, eventually I come upon a member of my own family and by God's grace, it would appear, they can speak the same language I speak so that families are maintained. 
And as I begin to talk with them and they with me, we don't recognize that we're talking a different language. It still seems exactly like it always has been. They talk, I hear, I talk, they hear, we're in communication. But why is everybody else talking weird? Slowly, small bands of people begin to collect with one another based on having a similar language. When they find that one person who can hear and understand and they can understand them, they'll grab them and they'll bring them into this little band so that there's still some semblance of community. Now, some groups, I would expect, try in vain to cross this barrier, to, to do hand signals. And you, you know what you do when someone doesn't understand you? You talk louder, right? So, you know, they yell at each other and they do hand signals and they make some attempt, but it doesn't go anywhere because there's absolutely no commonality. Remember, God scrambles not just the vocabulary, he scrambles the sounds, noises I'm not used to hearing that don't make any sense to me anymore. Sooner or later, we abandon that effort and we're frustrated and frightened because now we don't know what the future holds. And, of course, the work on the city stops. That's the last thing we care about now. Now we're just trying to make sense of the world. Soon, mistrust starts to build because when you don't know what someone else is saying, you assume the worst. You ever been in an elevator with two people who know another language and they start talking? How many of you think they're talking about you? No one else ever raises their hand. Am I the only one who walks around with that fear? But I've had that feeling. You know, you you walk in, they're already there, right? And they're standing there quietly. You walk in, and then after a few seconds, they start talking to each other. Like, what are they saying about me? They probably couldn't even care less about me. But my thinking is driven that way because I'm not a part of what they're saying. Well, imagine this on a large scale. And I think the mistrust and the fear starts to grow to a point where the only solution... Our little group has to protect ourselves against those groups who are talking about us or planning to come in at night and steal our things or maybe attack us. The only solution is distance. We need to get away from this group. We need to go off somewhere where we can protect ourselves. We need to move away. And over time, the scattering takes place. That's how this place earns its present day name, we're told, of Babel. That word in Hebrew literally means confusion. The confusion that God produced out of the changes in languages. Finally, God's will would be done here. The people scatter, they begin to fill the earth, and as we saw in chapter 10, they migrate out over the whole face of the earth. I don't think it's coincidence that we're moving backward in today's age. Have you noticed this? This is another aspect, another element that tells us the end is near. For example, today, business and the Internet is making English the one language of the world again. I found this particularly interesting as I've traveled overseas and working in missions work. The Internet is an amazingly powerful incentive for people to learn English. The the Internet and computers can handle many different languages, but if I want all that the world has to offer online, if I want to be able to go anywhere and see anything and have that at my disposal, if I don't know English, I'm locked out of four-fifths of what the Internet offers. But if I learn English, the world's open to me. Similarly, in business and in commerce, if I want to work freely in the world, in the Western world with business, I need to know English. English is becoming the dominant world language. In most countries of the world, no matter what their native language is, a significant proportion of the population knows English as well. And then secondly, the concentrating of people into cities again from what, what was previously a rural living has gone on for the last several centuries and is accelerating in these last days. Am I saying that English is a bad thing or am I saying that cities are necessarily a bad thing? No, I'm not making that kind of specific conclusion. But I'm pointing out that the same sinful behaviors that began in the world are still there today. 
And they will once again bring us to a point where Nimrod, who, if you remember last week, we said pictures the Antichrist, how a Nimrod like man will have the ability to take and seize control of the world again. And as he does so, he will produce a single city that leads the world in Babylon again. That is what Revelation tells us must happen. Remember I mentioned that Moses employs a wonderful literary device to reinforce the point of the story? The story here we just studied contains a chiasm, and you'll see it represented in the sheet. The structure begins in verse 1, and if I were to describe it for you, at the very beginning in verse 1 you have a statement, all the earth had one language. That statement is mirrored down at the very bottom in verse 9, but in opposite form. Where it begins with one language, it ends with the confusion of languages. And then, from verse 1 down to verse 5, you'll find new statements, separate statements, that each find their corresponding complement in the back half, the reverse half, of the chiasm. And this sheet I handed out, or you can download it online, shows you that, illustrates that to you clearly. But notice the point. The point of the chiasm is the turning point, the place in which the pattern reverses and starts to move the other direction. That turning point phrase has no complement. It stands alone. Chiasms occur frequently in Scripture. Particularly in Genesis, you'll see chiasms all over the place. They're just hidden below the surface of the text. Why are they there? To draw our attention to that turning point, to that single isolated statement that has no parallel. And in this case, of course, it's at the beginning of verse 5. The Lord came down to see. So while men were busy making their own plan, the Lord came down. When men were united in sin and opposed to God in rebellion, the Lord came down. As men worked in futility to reach heaven on their own, the Lord came down. That's the story of the whole Bible. While we were yet still sinners, enemies of God, the Lord came down. And died for us on a cross. Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, may the lessons of chapter 11 seem close at hand and not far away. May the message of the scripture this morning, Father, speak to us personally and not merely historically. And may we remember, Father, that as we endeavor to serve and obey, that we trust not in the work of our own hands, but in the Lord who came down and died for us, and did all that was necessary to save us. We thank you, Father, for that reminder this morning. And may we speak it at many times and in many places, wherever you may give us opportunity in the week to come. In Jesus' name, amen.